Hi, this is Dave Pryor for Leading Agile Sound Notes. Before we get started with the podcast, here's the TLDR. One of the most challenging aspects of agile transformation is finding high-performing, influential people who can lead change and coach teams and the organization through the journey over to Agile. This episode of the podcast features an interview with Mike Kottmeyer on how Leading Agile's hiring practices have evolved and what Mike's learned over the last eight years of running Leading Agile and finding the right people to bring impactful change to organizations trying to make the switch. Hope you enjoy it. When the guy opens his shirt and the little kind of... Future seeing Quado comes out of his chest. I, I guarantee you there's a less obscure reference you could have come up with. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This morning I have Mike Kottmeyer with me. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your you're like halfway into your day already, but it's yeah, well, we get we get pretty early starts, but no, I always appreciate finding time to talk to you. I got to warn you, I'm a little under the weather today, a little bit, a uh, little Reclamps. bit congested. So if I start sneezing and sniffling, you'll know why. Okay, well, you take whatever breaks you need to evacuate your nasal passages, and we'll just and, and you'll just edit them out, yeah, or the, we'll the make one mix, big huh? long recording of nothing but that. There you go. That would be entertaining and, so, and educational. So we're going to take on a topic that's going to be a little bit rambly, I think, in the beginning. But the idea so. of what we're talking about is. Um, it's, it's sort of about the way that transformation and coaching work has changed and about us, the work that we're trying to do to help clients find the right people to bring internally to help that transformation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's really kind of an interesting thing, you know, is, um, you know, cause we're about eight years old, old now. It's kind of weird that we've uh, managed to gainfully, uh, support myself and others for, for eight years at this point, but we've learned <laughs> a lot, um, about the industry, about hiring and, and what we're kind of seeing, right? And it's really fascinating. It's it's like you know, ten years ago when I worked at Version One, I remember somebody said to me something like, "In Atlanta, like nobody self-identified as an agile coach." And and now you hit LinkedIn and like everybody's an agile coach, right? I mean, you go to a couple of days of Scrum Master training and you you turn them into an agile coach, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So everybody's kind of an agile coach now. And so, so what you're what you're starting to see kind of in market is that this thing called coaching has become you know, or is becoming somewhat commoditized. And, and then I think, but in practice, right. I mean, we know that like, like, like people that are really doing coaching or, or maybe even taking a step further transformational kinds of coaching, right. It's, it's such, it's such a deep thing. Right. And so, um, as we've progressed as a company, what, what starts to happen is that we find that our clients are really relying us on us more for transformation, transformation strategy, right. They won't do as much of the coaching as that they possibly can themselves, right? Because we're expensive, and um, you know, there's not that many of us, and they need to scale, right? So we have to we have to more and more often help them build an internal capability to do this while we're helping them transform. And so that that's a shift by itself, right? Because we're yeah. not doing the thing where we like embed ourselves as a tick, or we're just like coming in, setting it up, leaving, and watching it fall apart. But let's be really clear: an incredibly high value, high leverage tick. Maybe. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Valuable ticks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Spoon. Yeah. Okay. I hear what you're saying. Well, you know, our, our strategy has always been, you know, come and get to a certain level of measurable performance and then, and then plan to leave. Right. That's what makes running a consulting company so hard. It's that it's that there's constant churn and what it is that you're doing. But yeah, you know, so it's like, is, is larger and larger organizations, you know, start to do this, you know, you take some of these companies have six, 8,000 people, right? And, you know, there's a lot of change that needs to happen all at one time. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's engagements and there's work to do in terms of just structuring and planning and kind of laying out an approach and helping, you know, be economically responsible and, you know, being able to measure progress and, you know, being able to report out and right, all that kind of stuff. And so that whole, that whole idea of leading a transformation versus like doing agile coaching work, right. Is a, it, that, that's where I'm seeing, that's where the, that's where the high value, you know, kind of offering is in our space, I believe at this point. Do you think it's shifting a little bit from p- companies coming in and showing other organizations, like here's how agile works, here's how you do it To It seems to me like the conversation has shifted more to, it's about organizational change and agile is just the thing that you're kind of bringing in at this time. 
Yeah, well, well, so, so I mean, I mean, obviously, as a CST, you've read the Scrum Guide, right? I mean, Scrum is like times. all of, yeah, a couple times, right? It's all <laughs> of like twenty pages long. I mean, it's like Scrum's just like not rocket science, right? It's so like once you've, you know, once you've been to to a CSM class and you understand the fundamentals and you've practiced it for a while and you know you've read the Scrum Guide and you've read some good books and things like that, it's like what is there to really teach, right? Um, what what's what's difficult about in applying Scrum in most kinds of environments is that is that the environment and the ecosystem um, don't always necessarily support it, right? So it's the it's the constant putting energy into the system to overcome the impediments in the short run, but then ultimately to resolve the impediments over the long run. Okay, and and that's and that's what is is difficult, and that's why. Um, you know, people hire coaches, right, to put energy into the system to overcome that inertia. What what transformation is really about, in in my opinion, is how do you proactively deal with the things that are organizationally um, impactful, so that the teams don't need so much support in doing Scrum. Okay. And what you're seeing in market, I mean, people know Scrum, right? I mean, it's it's not super hard, right? So people right. don't need full time people to teach them Scrum. What they need is full-time people to help them overcome impediments, or in our case, people to help them proactively deal with impediments that we just know are, are there in the organization. Yeah, so so coach sort of moving maybe more towards like a high-performing athlete has a coach there to keep them safe and keep them moving forward. It's more that than this is how you run. Yeah, so, so I don't know, right? So you, it's, it's always funny when you and I talk. I know, but I didn't get to the fact guy yet. I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm not like. I don't know that I'm always tracking to your to your to your metaphors. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something in there, right? I mean, it's like if you want to use like a football, it's like I'm not teaching you how to play the game, right? right. Um, you know, you know how to play the game, right? I'm, you know, it might be I'm teaching you um, something that's really, um, you know, how to like change your golf swing, right? If you're you know, Tiger Woods or something like that. Sure. Right. I mean, there's, there's, there's room for that kind of like super highly specialized stuff. Um, what I, what I find is it's like, it's like the transformation strategy, the, um, you know, being able to lead large numbers of people and being able to keep them safe over time Yeah. is, is the hard part. Right. And so we talk about like the difference between, um, it's, you know, just wrapping up football season here. Right. So, um, that's always present in mind. Um, is like the difference between like a head coach or a game planner or a strategist versus like a position coach versus like um, somebody who's quarterbacking the team versus yeah. somebody who's a role player, right? And and somebody's got to own um, the strategy, right? The game plan, like like how do we expect this thing to unfold, right? It's not just eleven players and a couple coaches out on the field all doing whatever they feel like doing or letting the game emerge based upon what the other team's doing, right? You generally have a strategy that you're trying to um, trying to execute within the organization because your hypothesis is if you can execute the strategy, you win, right? And, and obviously reality, the other team in this metaphor has something to say about that, right? So that's why you're constantly adjusting kind of the plan in order to be able to, to accomplish that goal. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? I think so. It's the segue. Okay. So what kind of people do we need to do that, Mike? (laughs) Well, you know, so, so when Dave and I were brainstorming about, uh, I guess I should talk to you in first person, right? So I guess Uh, I just flipped the talking to, I'll talk about myself in third person. You can talk to me. You can talk to us whatever way you'd like. There you go. So, so I, yeah, I literally flipped talking to to the audience. So, um, yeah. So when we were, when we were talking about this, you know, one of the things that I thought would be interesting to discuss is, 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 you know, after eight years of, of doing this stuff, you know, we've created hypotheses, right? And these hypotheses are ever evolving about, you know, the kind of um, talent, I guess, that you need um, to be able to do that. And, it, and it's still kind of a black art. But, you know, Rachel Howard on our team, our chief cultural officer, you know, when I when I hired her a couple years ago, you know, one of her her mandates was let's start creating a model. Let's start figuring out like what the core like skills and attributes of people are that really lend to, um, you know, being able to do this kind of work, right? It's kind of fascinating. And so what's been neat about it is that in several of our larger transformation clients, we've actually um, used some of our internal hiring models to help um, our clients uh, hire and develop the, the kinds of people that they need long term to be able to sustain these transformations. So 
it's been kind of a powerful thing. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let's dig into that. So you're trying to create, you, you said before, like a little mini leading agile inside the client's company. Well, yeah, sometimes that's what it is, right? Because like in, you know, we're like 75 people right now and, and still growing. And, you know, we maybe have 45, 50 coaches, billable people right at any given time. And, you know, and we're spread across multiple clients, right? So um, I think our highest concentration right now is 15, 16 people. In a, okay. in a, and and that's not even a dent in the level of support that they need, right? And so, and so I don't know that there's armies of people out in the world that know deeply how to do this stuff. And so like what our kind of hypothesis has been is to go find the people that have the right core attributes put them in the right kind of transformation framework with the right kind of support. And then, you know, they can be successful over time. And, and so what we're finding is in, in large engagements that a lot of the same things that we have to do to build leading agile are actually transferable into client organization to help them become self-sustaining over time with uh, what it is that they're trying to do internally, right? And so okay. it creates kind of a value prop because in, in one way, right, you know, so we're expensive and we come in and we're a heavy presence and we're not designed to be there forever, right? But we know that this stuff often will take years and, yeah. and there's reinforcement. So what are you going to do when we're done, right? And so that's been kind of the story. And, and it's, it's kind of neat, right? It's been fun to kind of watch that offering emerge. So if, if for folks yeah. that are listening who are kind of trying to work on their careers and, and thinking about longer-term career development, the job is shifting from just being you know somebody who knows a ton about Agile and yeah. has done a bunch of Agile to yeah. people that have a kind of a wider, wider range of stuff and a kind of a bigger package that we're looking at. So can you talk about some of the things that, that leading Agile looks for? Like, because yeah. it is a long, I was just talking to a guy the other day. He's like, this is the longest hiring process I think I've yeah. ever been through. So what, well, talk know, about how that talked, works. We've talked about how to, how to shorten it. And, and I'm not actually super interested in trying to make it shorter, but we are, you know, looking for ways to kind of lean it out, make it more effective, maybe have to be able to talk to less people. And so, it's so like, you know, back in the day, right? So let's, you know, when, when you're growing a company, you know, you tend to start with people that you know and you trust. And so there's not a whole lot of science to it. You know, I've worked with this guy. I like him. I think he knows his stuff. He's got a good personality. You trust you know, him I, to represent I you. do this. Trust him to represent me. Yeah. And then so, you know, you bring somebody like that in the company. And then, you know, sometimes, and it happened for us around 25 or 30, where you start to go, okay, well, I don't know enough people anymore, right? So now we're hiring friends of friends. We're hiring people that know people. We're hiring people that apply on the website. And and so if I, if I just kind of say – you know, hiring practice 1.0, right, for us was, okay, do they have deep understanding of Agile, right? Have they read the right books? Do they know the right materials? Do they know, you know, five different approaches to slicing user stories, right? Do they know how to do this, right? Um, you know, as we progress in that, it's like, do they have any perspective on like how to do program kind of tier execution in multi-team kind of environments, do they know patterns all the way from scrum of scrums all the way up to like things that we call product owner teams or, um, you know, you could get even get into some of the safe stuff, um, okay. you know, train engineers and architecture teams and stuff like that. And then, you know, do they have portfolio experience? And so kind of our first slice through the system was probably things like, do you have the right skills and knowledge? Do you have the right backgrounds and experiences and right? Have you done the work? Yeah. Okay. And, um, what was interesting about that kind of level of hiring for us is that, is that while it's interesting, you know, that somebody's run, um, you know, maybe a transformation internally, right. You never really know like what exactly was their role, how influential were they, what was their, were they a participant or were they the driver? Right. I mean, there's right. just all kinds of like really interesting things they kind of come out of that. And so what you found is that you had, we had some people that we would interview for that kind of a thing and they would do incredibly well. And then you'd have some people that required a whole lot more support. And, um, and so, so I guess like, so in that one point, right. So it's not just, so it's skills, it's, it's background and experiences. We would also look for things like culture fit. Um, we would look for things like, um, you know, are you community person, right? Do you, you know, have you, you've gone out and spoken, do you write blogs? Are you passionate, right? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, kind of our hypothesis was, is that if you've, if you've done it 
and you know it and you care about it and you're going to be a good fit for us, then you'll be a good consultant for us. Well, how, how and, do you define fit? Yeah. Like, how does that, that, cause that to me has always seemed kind of vague other than like yeah, well, one place is, there was like one guy and if he blessed you, you were cool. If not, you couldn't hang. Yeah. Well, it is, it is a little bit, um, it is a little bit of a, of a black art. Right. And, and we've, we've started to pull out, you know, when I get into the 2.0 stuff, right. We'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit about that, but, um, but yeah, it's like, it's like, do you have, um, you know, do you have like a, you know, like a, you know, affable personality, right? Are you, are you likable? Are you, um, do you feel like you, you know, you'll, you'll get along. Do you have, and I think some of it is like, do you have humility? You know, there's some element of like, are you not an asshole? Right. I mean, yeah. that kind of stuff, you know? And, and I mean, a lot of that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, as we've hired, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that we've hired with maybe a few exceptions that I didn't like personally, right? Okay. That I think it's a good fit for the team. Okay. And, and so, you know, sometimes we've hired people that, you know, that we, we didn't suss out their hard skills enough, or maybe they overstated their background. Um, you know, but, but everybody that we've ever hired is really high on the, you know, kind of gives a crap quotient and really good people and all that kind of a thing. Well, and there are and people, so, since it's yeah. a remote company, there are people sometimes yeah. that, that seem like a great fit and you hire them and they just kind of disappear. Well, so that doesn't happen as much as you might think. I mean, we do a pretty good job, at least nowadays, of, of kind of keeping people engaged and, and, you know, getting together on a regular basis. But what we were finding is that, is that, when you would get these really, really smart people that really cared, that were a great culture fit, that had background and skills and experience, but they weren't necessarily as influential on the client side because okay. it's, it's really a fascinating thing, right? Because there's the – like there's no shortage of people that know how to solve the problem nowadays, right. Right? right? The question is, is can you get other people to move? Okay. okay. Yeah. And so, and so that's a little bit of like what we were talking about in the last um, podcast we did where we talked about the trust and influence. influence yeah. Right. And so I don't want to go all into that, but there's, um, but there's this, this notion of, you know, you might be highly competent, you might have a really strong point of view, but if you can't um, demonstrate empathy and create safety or operate with integrity to get the results, you know, then, you know, you're just a nice guy that showed up that was really smart that couldn't get anybody to do anything. Yeah. And, and so this is what got us into. So like when Rachel first joined us, one of the first things we did, and I'll give a little shout out um, to a company that we use out in Southern California called People Best. And they have a product called People DNA that, that we started, um, we started working with. And what's really cool is that Jim Hunter, guy that um, I think he owns it, if, if not his principal in it, um, did is he started working with us, right? And we kind of did like a flat monthly fee with him or something. And, um, and, uh, and we basically run everybody through that. And so we have a ton of data right now around, um, people that, um, that we've hired and didn't work out people that we've hired that we think are rock stars, people uh, that we've hired that we think are, are super solid, uh, but maybe don't have as much upside. We have, um, data on people that we, uh, we didn't hire, uh, you know, people that quit, right. I mean, all kinds of interesting things. Right. Sure. And, and so kind of our hypothesis was that, that, um, that if we could get up underneath and we call this, this I, I call this behavior, right? So, okay. um, so if you could get up underneath your behavior, right, what you do kind of like your default DNA, yeah. then, then we could see. And, and what was interesting and, and I don't have, I mean, there's tons and tons of data around this, but what was, what was fascinating, it was things like um, energy and self-assurance. Um, and then they have like these indicators called like resilience or recovery time. And, and it was really fascinating. Like, do you get your feelings hurt? And if you get your feelings hurt, does it take you a long time to get over it? Okay. Right. And so you can imagine a consultant who's really smart, who gets on the ground, who has a really strong point of view who's maybe lower on the empathy scale or doesn't quite understand our model yet, asserts something to be true, the client tells them they're full of crap, and then rather than to figure out another way to go back and engage They go with sulk them, in their cubicle. They go sulk in their cubicle yeah. and like don't, and don't engage for another two or three days, right? Yeah. And, and that's like an extreme, right? It's a little hyperbole, but that's like – I think it's an extreme at Leading Agile. I don't think it's an extreme at a lot of the other places I've been. Well, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Right. And so, but what we found is that, is that you could start to look at those kinds of behavioral patterns and, and right. So you have to have somebody that has 
a lot of self-confidence, a lot of energy, um, doesn't get their feelings hurt easy. Um, when they do, they get over it really fast, right? They can keep coming back to try to figure out how to solve the problem. Right. And, uh, and it, and it's just been absolutely fascinating. And so we've been kind of, um, with one of our clients who've, um, you know, within our model for assuming if you're listening to this, you're at least passingly familiar with what we do. We talk about the idea of transformation leads and expedition leads versus enterprise transformation consultants and things like that. And so we've gotten some pretty good gradations based upon people's tested, um, behavioral patterns that are a pretty strong leading indicator of whether they're going to be successful in that kind of role. Right. And uh, it's it's really cool, right? It's it's really fascinating to see all this data start to play out but, over time, right? So if I'm if I'm somebody, I mean, if I'm somebody who's got a company and I'm bringing people in, this totally makes sense. If I'm somebody yeah. who is looking for a job, and you didn't like my quarter reference, so I'm going to go even more hardcore. <laughs> You're just going to okay. give me the Voigt Comp test, Voigt Comp test, and if yeah. I don't yeah. pass it. Then you know I'm a replicant. And you're going to send me away to a mining colony. Well, it's it's not it's not a it's not a pass fail kind of thing, right? I mean, there's been there's been people that we've talked to where we look at their data and 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 what we'll say is like you know like I'll give you this one guy interviewed and he kind of interviewed like totally off profile for us, and but I really liked everything else about him and and. You know, for me now, right? So this has been a couple years, um, and so like, like today, maybe we wouldn't have made that hire, right? He was so off model, but at that point in time, um, you know, I, I talked him through, and I said, look, so this is what your test shows, and and I know that human beings are more than 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 a test, right? Right. And I don't know what was going through his head or what his biases are at the time. We weren't sure, you know, is this is this is this possible to game or people answering questions the way we think they want us to, right? All that kind of stuff. So I said, so here's the thing, right? I said, if this profile is accurate, like I'm not saying you can't do the job, but I think if it's accurate, you're having to put a ton of energy into being something that you're probably not by default. Okay. Right. And this one particular guy, and if he's listening, he'll probably recognize himself in this, but he's like, his daughters were like getting ready to graduate high school. He had a pretty stable job. Right. Um, you know, he had like these areas of focus. And I just said, look, man, I said, I think what's going to happen is I think you've been able to overcome these things in your professional career and be a lot of success. I'm going to put you on the road. You're going to be separated from your family. You're going to be pulled back all the time. I think you're going to have to put a ton of energy into yeah. just being on the road. And so therefore, like, I, I wonder if you're going to be able to sustain energy yeah. into behaving different than your base profile. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was like, there's a couple other guys that um, we interviewed early on who I'm like huge fans of personally. There are people I see at conferences who I, who I think the absolute world of. And they're like, hey, I want to, you know, come work for you. I want to interview. And I, we would run through the tests and I'd say, look, man, so like what I can tell from, from this is that you require like a tremendous amount of structure. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I require a tremendous structure. I said, we have no structure. Right? This yeah. is like year one and two, right? And so I like, we have no structure. And so I think you're going to come and you're going to be frustrated with us. So, so and, it's not something yeah. that you would then – because I, I do horrible on those tests because I second guess – and triple guess every single yeah. answer before I mark anything down. Like, that's not something that I can necessarily fix about myself. Or, or like I can develop skill, I can develop knowledge, I could work on my EQ even. But yeah. scoring better on a people best test, I'm, I'm a certain way, and yeah. that's just meant to well, show but, that. But here's the thing, right? So, so this is what you'd have to recognize, right? And it, and this is in and you know part of the interview process is making sure that we don't hire people in that are going to be unhappy doing what's expected of them. Yeah. And, and so if you're going to hire in and you're going to be, you know, um, and you're going to have these attributes, like I have no doubt that a lot of people can overcome kind of their base personality traits. The challenge is, is are they going to be happy if they can't be who they are to be successful in this job? Yeah. Right. And so for us, it's been, you know, sometimes it's, it's been a, a good screening tool. Sometimes it's a good coaching tool, right? It's a, it's a tool for helping people be aware of what their tendencies are. Right. Um, and you know, we have people that we've hired, um, you know, that were hired before we started doing this and we understand now how their, their data profiles, um, against some of our, our latest thinking. And, you know, candidly, you know, if we were hiring them today, maybe they, maybe they wouldn't have passed that filter. Right. But sure. because of, how much they care about what we do and their investment in it and what they've learned over time, 
um, you know, they've, they've overcome a lot of that and their passion and energy makes them highly effective for us. Yeah. Okay. But what's happened is like a lot of times, like when somebody's brand new and, you know, we're dropping them into really tough situations right out of the gate, it, it's really just about increasing everybody's odds that we get a good fit right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, and, and when we apply that into clients, right, there's a lot of times, you know, you know, whoever just happens to be the, the most enthusiastic agilist, or maybe somebody has been a scrum master or they've been an internal coach for a while. And, and so they get deemed as the person that's going to go lead the transformation. Um, if, you know, there's, there's now we've got the ability to kind of go, well, well, but hold on a minute, you know, maybe that person's not the best person to be in this role. And this is why. Yeah. And if we interviewed 15 people, right, maybe we could have a better shot at finding the person that is going to be the person that's most effective in okay. that role. Right. Okay. So that was kind of the beginning of, um, of, uh, kind of hiring for us 2.0. And the other thing that kind of, I think came around that time was this little thing we, we talk about beliefs and it, and it's really similar. And, um, I don't, I apologize to the community. I don't know this is what it was called, but some of the work that like Lisa Atkins and, and Michael Spade were doing where they were talking about something to the effect of like, I, we, us, them, or something kind of yeah. describe perspectives on transformation. And, uh, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of parallelisms and there's is way, way more developed than what we've got, but it's like, but basically what we found is that like people take one or two perspectives, right? They tend to be really team focused or they tend to be more enterprise focused and they tend to be more people focused versus more business focused. And so, so you can kind of imagine, I like to do things in quadrants. I guess that means I'm really, one's not, one's not better than the other, right? You're just trying to get it. Nothing better, right? Nothing better, right? Okay. It's just like, like you can be, you can be a team level people focused coach, right? And you drop in and it's all about the relationships and the dynamic and the inner workings of the team and all that stuff right which is Meet very kind like of that, first right? generation um, agile that's like you know hey man yeah, we're just you yeah, know. but even that even that implies a certain degree of um you know a, a certain degree of judgment right and i don't and, and again i don't <laughs> want to be yes. more, more involved or not involved right it's just a focus um yeah. kind of the other side of that is you could be kind of business focused but still focused at the team level so you might think of like a project manager who flips to a scrum master and it's all about the backlog and knowing the size of the backlog and the velocity of the team and the mechanics Optimizing and the, utilization. the rituals and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you see in a lot of people, there's, you know, they're kind of a hybrid of, of those layers, right? They might tend to be more people focused, but they, they respect the, the business and the metric side of things. Right. Okay. And then on the other side of that, you've got, you've got this idea of, um, maybe more, enterprise focus, right? So your, so your nature is scale. And, and I think you can be more business focused and more people focused even at the, at the level of scale. And, and so I think of like Dan Mezek, uh, in this, in one of those quadrants, right. Is Dan, you know, talks a lot about culture and permission and engagement and all those kinds of things, but he goes into larger organizations and using tools like open space and, you know, very, you know, very collaborative, engaging kinds of things, right. Tries to enlist, um, the, the company or the group yeah. to, to participate, right. That's cool too, right? I mean, he's got a niche and, and there's certain well, people and organizations that resonate with that. Can I ask you a question? Just yeah, pause you for a question. So yeah. I know as you're talking about this, this is what's going on in my head. I, yeah. I, I'm realizing that I have reached a point where I think, you know, as a coach, like all you have to do to be an agile coach is stand up and declare yourself an agile coach. Then you work with teams. And when you, yeah. when you grow up from that, you go work on, you know, multiple teams. And eventually when you really become a grown up, you get to do enterprise. What you're talking about is that's not necessarily true. You're kind of wired towards one side or the other, and that's cool. Just find your spot. Well, well, that's what we've been. So, so yeah, right. So that's what we've been kind of trying to figure out, right? And with this thing with beliefs, right? What's really fascinating is is like the last quadrant where I was going was this kind of enterprise business focused, where where you know you can take our model anywhere from teams backlogs, working tested software, dependencies, structure governance metrics 
you know, kind of that reference implementation. I'd say, you know, safe kind of falls into that quadrant where they're really trying to deal with a complex enterprise problem. We talk a lot about business architecture and technology architecture, or encapsulation and orchestration, and how do you get portfolio governance to, to work in smaller batches? And, you know, how do you improve the system over time, right? So we take a very systems approach to it, right? <clears throat> and like one of the things that we would find, right, is that somebody would call us up and they've got a lot of the right skills and experiences and they've done a lot of things, but, and they, and they read um, our stuff and maybe even the stuff that we write about like deeply resonates with them and they want to participate in what we're doing. But at their core, they're kind of a people focused team level person. They recognize this problem exists, but in their core, they have this default disposition. And I'll tell you, I, I've had some really great conversations with Lisa Atkins and a little bit to a lesser extent, Michael Spade. And Lisa will absolutely tell you she's kind of like a team people kind of person. Yeah. Right. And and that's her home base. Right. And that's awesome. OK. And and you need in a lot of organizations a mix of both. Yeah. Okay? You need so a John the, and a Paul. I mean, you can't be both. Yeah. There you go. Right. So that's a Beatles reference. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Right. Either that or <laughs> I hope Tesla so. Otherwise, I've got problems. No, I guess it wouldn't match my good John. OK. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. OK. Cool. So, yeah. So, um, so so we tend our home base tends to be in that quadrant of of uh, business focused enterprise class transformation. And so what we do is we seek out people that have that, that bent and that perspective is kind of their default perspective, because it's another one of those things, right? You get on, you get on the engagement, you're in front of a client and now you're sitting here um, under pressure, trying to resolve a complex issue. And if your bent is to go, well, that's, a relationship problem between the senior VP of this and the that, right? You might absolutely be right. Yeah. But that's probably not what our client signed up to solve, at least not out of the gate. Right. And so, and so understanding people's beliefs and kind of the biases that they bring to the table, right? Their default positioning, then um, that helps us understand how they're going to behave under pressure. So you have to kind of know your truth in terms of, you know, this is kind of what my leanings are. Like you said, Lisa, no, she's more team focused, but then you have to also be able to step outside of that and acknowledge, okay, that's the problem from my perspective, but not necessarily what the client sees the problem as being, because what they're paying you for is to solve their perception of the problem. Well, so, but here's the interesting thing. There's probably like, there's probably like three different categories, right? Okay. So if I've, if I've already hired somebody and we don't like, or there's a coach on the ground, um, and a client that we're working with, yeah. um, I might not have the ability to, I, and then I'm using probably this, this understanding as a coaching and awareness tool. Okay. okay? Like I can't, tr- I can't make anybody believe anything or come from a perspective they don't, but if they're there, they're in the job, then I'm going to create awareness around it. Okay. Um, you know, uh, as a, as a development tool, right. You could create a series of skills and experiences and, and things to go study and learn and, and that kind of a thing. Right. So you can use it as, as an awareness tool. You can use it as kind of a coaching tool. Um, if if I'm if I'm hiring somebody, right, or I'm screening somebody for a position, then all things equal, I might use it as a decision to choose one person over the other, right? Because because again, right, a lot of it when it comes to us or when you're making selections internally, it's all about um, increasing your probability of near-term success. Okay. Um, you know, I've obviously, right. I mean, you don't put people in a box, right. I mean, people can evolve and grow and learn and all that kind of stuff. And then you just have to ask yourself, right. Do they have enough other compensating, um, behaviors or goodness or whatever that, that make me want to invest the time in that person over the life of their, their tenure with me to, to help them move in that direction. Um, the other thing is, is are they going to be safe on the account or on the, on the part of the organization that they're working with? Right. Is that default perspective going to color their view of the solution? Okay. And is that okay? Right. And and so again, right, there's no black and white. There's no good and bad. It's just it's just understanding people's core tendencies and where they're going to go 
at a default place. Well, and their and their understanding yeah. of their own biases and leanings. Yeah, because so, a lot of I it mean, is just hacking yourself as much as hacking the other people. Yeah. So, so I mean, you think about you tie some of this stuff together, right? I've had a lot of success and experience um, doing kind of team based, people based, transformational kinds of things. I have my agile skills. I've you know, I'm a community person. I got I speak. I'm a great, uh, awesome person that everyone wants to be around, right? So. Then, so they have like all this stuff, right? So they have this huge track record of success, but yet then we people DNAM and they find out that they get their feelings hurt really easily and they have long recovery time. And because they have this kind of team-based people focus and we're putting them into an enterprise business focused client, what you might find is that if their point of view is incongruent with the client's point of view and they get their feelings hurt and they go off and sulk, it doesn't matter how much skills and experience they have. Right, they work. might not yeah. be a good fit for that client, right? Yeah, um, or they might not be a good fit for your internal coach, right? So, so again, it's just that understanding and awareness of how people kind of sort out and and what they're going to do by default. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and I think uh, one thing I want to mention is that it's not, you know, you you said you want to have people get a job where they can enjoy themselves and thrive yeah, earlier. Right. And yeah, I think right. one of the things that we're blessed with in this field is there's so much work. Yeah, if you're yeah. if you've got a gig you don't like and you don't feel good about it and you're not doing work that brings you some kind of joy quit yeah. get another yeah. job yeah it's in nobody's best interest to join me in leading agile or for a client to hire a coach that's going to be incongruent unhappy that you're constantly swimming upstream against right constantly battling over worldview right i mean it just there's a lot of that stuff you can kind of like sort out you don't have to you don't have to make the same mistakes right yeah um, so, so here's the interesting thing, right? So that was kind of like hiring 2.0 for us. Okay. And then the the third level is, which we're still kind of working out is, um, and this is going to be really fascinating, right? but I want to explain my rationale. We use a tool called CCAT and I don't know if that's a tool that we're going to, to stay on, but it basically, it's like a little like mini kind of IQ thinking test. And it gives you like a verbal score, a math score and a spatial score. And so what it, what it, it gives me kind of like it gives me four numbers, right? So it gives me like the total number of um, questions answered, and then it gives me a rating based upon you know how accurate you were in the spatial, which is like problem solving, pattern recognition. Um, you know how can you do like and it's like the math stuff is it's not super complicated math, but it's just like you got to be able to do it kind of fast and yeah. accurately. And then verbal, like you know, can you? Um, you know, in a sentence, right, with two blanks, can you pick the right word combinations to go in it, right? And so what's interesting to me is it's, it's not really about how smart you are. It's about how fast you can think and how accurately you can think. Because in the test, right, the, the, the thing that you're, you're solving for isn't rocket science. And like anybody with any degree of, you know, I'd even say high school education, let alone college education, with enough time should be able to solve everything, right? To get all 50 of them right and to be accurate. But you don't get um, enough cause, time. Cause they're not it's, hard, right? Right. But you have 15 minutes to get through 50 questions. Yeah. Right. So now you're under pressure. Now you got to think fast. Now you got to be accurate. You got to apply what you know under pressure accurately. And it's if you are a very right? thoughtful, like to meander over stuff person, or if you just read <clears throat> slow, you, that's going to be a challenge. Well, yeah. So, but here's, but here's the correlation to kind of consulting and coaching performance, right? A lot of times you might get that one opportunity to walk into a CIO's office and you might have five or 10 minutes to like really make an impression on them. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's like, you might be the smartest person in the room, but you know, they've got a hundred people coming in and out of their office that week and a million problems to solve. And they're doing kind of a, a blink level. Was that Daniel Goldman's book blink? No, not Daniel Goldman. Um, oh, Gladwell. Malcolm yeah, Gladwell. Gladwell. Thank you. Yeah, Goldman's the emotional intelligence guy. And so, yeah, Gladwell's book, Blink, right? You're making like really quick assessments if that person can help you or not. And and if you're not like, like again, right, you take all the things you just talked about, skills, experience, background, belief, behaviors, all those kinds of things, right? If you can't come in and synthesize that for an exact really fast and like make like, like I generally find that, um, you know, within the first five minutes of like a sales call or an initial introduction to somebody, if the conversation is going to go anyplace, because you're either, you've either connected with them and they think you can solve their problem and they want to spend time with you or they don't. And then they're giving you the 30 minutes that they promised and then they're going to move but, on. Okay. So, so I want to pause on yeah. that one for a second, because 
Yes, and a lot of that is also going to be based on everything else that's going on with that person on the other side of the desk. So you've got to be able to walk in and like take the room. One of the things that I know happens for me is when I interview people for jobs, my decision's made by the time their butt hits the chair. And then they've got to change my opinion. So Uh, it's a little bit, I'm probably not quite as harsh as you are, right? I tend to like, I tend to go into things like pretty open-minded, but you know, if I ask um, a fairly open-ended question and we're not even going in the right direction, right? I might, I might try to pull you in a couple times, right? Because I mean, we actually, you know, we absolutely by the time somebody interviews with me, right? They they've probably been through ten interviews, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's like I'm like I'm trying to figure out what my team saw in them, and and yeah. So but but t- turning that around, right? If 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 you can't think fast and apply what you know dynamically under pressure. Right. So what we started to do is we started to look for in our process, like a leading indicator of somebody's ability to be able to collaborate in front of a whiteboard. Yeah. Okay. Because here's the fascinating thing, right? I get a lot of things like, you know, cause you imagine the agile communities all over the place, like people interview with me and I can absolutely tell that they're telling me what they think I want to hear. Right. Right. And, and they're giving me kind of like all the same pat answers, right? All this stuff. Um, and, and I'll give them the opportunity to pivot. And if they can't think fast enough to pivot, right, they're not going to be able to think fast enough to be able to lead a conversation with an executive either. Yeah. And then well, that, that executive move, right? And that's sort of where I was going. You walk in the room, you've got to read everything around you and respond yeah. with your body language and your voice and your pace of speech and everything well, you're saying well, that fast. Well, so here's the interesting thing, right? So, so that's actually another indicator that we're doing. We're using an instrument called EQI, which is an emotional intelligence test, right? And so that has a lot to do with like reality sensing. And, and I wish I could remember like the other 35 things that it gives you an indicator on, but it's like, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there too, that gets into, can you sense the emotional state and the responsiveness of the other person you're talking to? You know, if you walk in and um, you say your spiel and they say, oh, that was really awesome. Thank you so much. Can you tell whether they're, you know, if they really mean it or they're being polite? Right. I mean, you can you read those social cues? Yeah. Right. Read how the other person is responding to you. And so you start to see how it all kinds of works together, because if you've got all the right attributes and you've got the right core beliefs and you have the right skills and experiences, and you can think incredibly fast and you can read the person on the other side of the room and adapt your thinking in real time. Right? Yes. That's a lot of stuff. I was right? gonna say, yeah. and you can move through yeah. solid matter and you've got laser beams in your eyes. Well, herein lies the problem, right? Herein lies the problem. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I'll coach our internal people, especially new people coming in, it's like you can imagine after eight years of of doing this and building models, I have a pretty strong point of view. Like I don't, I don't generally believe that I'm stupid. Right. And, and I'm, and I'm open-minded to a point, but it's like, you got to kind of have done your homework. Yeah. Right. So if you walk in with like an incredibly naive perspective on how I should change my company. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll be polite. I'll listen. I'm my coach. I'll give you some feedback. I'm probably not going to like run you out the door and yell at you, but it's like, don't also don't expect me to like um, turn over our entire operating model because you had this really cute insight about how I should do something different. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's a lot of times like what we're, we're up against with these executives, right? They might be totally wrong. Okay. But they've come to their point of view, um, often from a very thoughtful, right. They could be totally wrong paradigm could be totally misinformed. Right. But they have a point of view, right. That they've invested in, they've spent political capital on, You know, they're there. And so like you're like this agile coach freshly minted from your CSM training and you walk in and you go, hey, Mr. CIO, you need to be um, a better participatory servant leader or something. Right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, get out of here. Get out right. Of if that's yeah. your lead thing. Right. <laughs> and so and so these skills are like really, really like you need to like walk in and you have to have enough understanding of the problem those executives are trying to solve. And then you have to be able to orchestrate the conversation really quickly to help, you know, to take what you know and to be able to apply it in a way that's going to be meaningful and resonate with them. And then you got to be constantly watching their body language and their, in, their, their nuance and their tone of voice. And if they start to sweat or if they shift in their seat, right? I mean, again, right, to do this really, really well is, is it's, it's hard to find, right? It's hard to find. And then um, the last thing, 
and this, you might even consider this kind of like 4.0, right? And I don't even know if we've got it like totally quantified yet. And there's like something in like the intersection between like left brain and right brain thinking that's kind of creative, but scientific at the same time. Um, and then, um, and then there's something in this space of what we call solutioning. And um, I think you'll remember, we, you know, we get together, you know, every three or four months generally um, as a team. And a um, couple, couple times ago, I brought these um, things that people might remember from the 90s. They call them stereograms. They're evil. Where, where you look at them and it looks like a bunch of static and noise. And what you've got to be able to do is kind of like tweak your eyes funny to be able to see the picture of the unicorn in the field, right, that emerges or the ship or something like that. And at first glance, that image isn't there, but, um, but as you, um, you know, as you look at it, right, the image begins to emerge. And, and so there's this, this other part that is like, like, can you solution with a client, right? Can you help them cut through the noise and, and co-create something for them out of that noise that, that doesn't exist today, right? In order to do that, you have to be able to see what's possible. And so that's kind of what we're, we're plugging into now. And, and we're not sure if it's like, you know, scenario based interviewing or what, because, you know, our model is, is, is unique enough that, that people don't have a basis in it. So I can't use that as a starting point, but it's like, what can we, what can we do to start to drive out and pull out that ability of the solution? And, you know, that's the, that's the whole package, right? So if you're going to put somebody in front of a transformation office and actually really lead a, um, uh, you know, a, a, an engagement or a, or a transformation office internally uh, to any level of scale, right? You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to start to lay that foundation. You got to have those skills to be able to lay that foundation and actually lead it. And then, and then what you find is like, not everybody has to have all of that. Right. So a big part of it is That's also, rec- yeah, is recognizing <laughs> like who has what, right. So somebody's got to be able to influence and have the executive level conversations. And then somebody's got to be able to kind of orchestrate and, and lead the, the engagement. And then, then, you know, you need people that understand how to do team level coaching and have empathy for people and can teach hard skills and stuff like that. I was going to go after this because I mean, I know that those, those people scores, I test, I do not do well on those. And when you brought up the stereograms, I spent like six hours trying to see that stuff. Couldn't do it. But, but the thing that I wanted to kind of offer up for folks is like, I don't think from my perspective, and maybe you would disagree it's not worth me spending like weeks and weeks and weeks teaching myself necessarily to see the stuff in the stereogram because part of the test is I see those things that way or I don't. There's other stuff I see that people don't see. Yeah. Well, so like if you think of your role with, within Leading Agile, right, you are perfectly positioned within Leading Agile to capitalize on your strengths, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're a deep, knowledgeable scrum trainer. You've, you've personality. You engage people. Watch people. Total Recall a lot. Exactly. Right. You know, obscure <laughs> references, you know, entertaining podcasts, no, but all that stuff's really good. Right. Cause it's part of like your personality. Right. And, yeah. and you have a unique situation where, where you've managed to find a place that like perfectly taps into your strengths. Yeah. Um, the worst thing, I think the first time you and I ever had a conversation about us working together. Right. And I was talking about kind of coaching and some of the things we were doing. I think you recognize you're like, yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that I would be necessarily good at it. I don't know that I would love it. No, I have limitations as a coach. I absolutely know that I do. You have what? I'm sorry. Limitations. Like I can only watch people do stuff a certain way so long before I'm just like, stop it. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So, so, so again, right. It's not about good and bad is right. It's about putting people in a situation that's most likely for them to be successful for the company and for them to be successful in their career. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than putting somebody into a situation where they're out of their depth, they're out over their skis, whatever metaphor you want to use there. Ooh, and skiing. We've not done that one before. Right? They're just struggling. Yeah. And that's no fun for anybody, right? It's not fun for the client. It's not fun for me. It's not fun for them. And so, you know, it's as much about helping people figure out like what they're good at as it is about helping, you know, making sure that you're not trying to line them up with something that they're bad at. So can I ask you a question, sort of a future looking question? And I, and I might cut this out. Um, one of the things (laughs) that if you don't cut it out, are you going to leave in your, we'll see now it sounds extra honest because I said I might cut it out. So it's kind of like playing the room. Okay. 
I think you should leave it. I'm really not going to cut it out, but I'm pretending (laughs) I might. Um, So one of the things that I keep thinking is I keep thinking about the Scrum Master job as more and more of a social engineering job. And I, and you know, you're talking about these things like whether it's emotional intelligence or reading people or situations or whatever's going on. I'm wondering why there's not more of a focus from the coaching or transformation side of the house on social engineering practices, like studying some of that stuff that hackers do to infiltrate organizations and finding ways to use it in a positive way to affect change in a company. I can see where people might look at it and say, that seems insincere, but yeah, maybe it is. But if it's part of the job, if that's what you're there for. So, so here's the interesting, I'm just going to be just keeping it like really, really, right. Um, I don't think when Mike Beadle and Ken Schwaber and Jeff Sutherland were envisioning the scrum master. Yeah. They envisioned kind of what it's become. Probably not. Right. And, and I think what, I think, you know, when you look at those guys, I think they were really thinking super senior, insightful, agilist that could go remove impediments and, and champion and advocate for the team and, yeah. and just be just, just total badasses in the organization. Right. right? And which and they think, were, at the which time. they were right? right. Right. And which, yeah, which a lot of us have been in our past. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what starts to happen, right. Is, is you see this in the market, right. It's like everybody's trying to get the, the lowest cost person to do the job they possibly yeah. can. <laughs> yes. And so, and so we, we've created mass market, for, for CSM stuff, right? Which, yeah. is, which is good, right? And in, in some ways, and, and it's probably destructive in other ways, but that's okay. Right. And then, so we've have a mass market for a certification. He didn't say that. It. He wants all of you to take our CSM training. <laughs> well, I do. Right. And there's, and it's fine. <laughs> it's right? a, so if it's you, an entry if you point, it's an it entry point. Intended, yeah. It's an entry point. Right. But that's not how the market always receives it. Right. The HR people are like, Oh, you have a CSM. Yeah. I've gotten probably, yeah. So you'll, so you'll notice this. Right. So I've sent like several people to your, to your classes. Right. Yeah. They were like, friends of mine that I've given a free seat to, right? Because they were in between jobs or whatever. And, and I'm telling you, I'll, I'll name some names uh, off the call, but it's like these people have gone to your class and they've gotten jobs in IT and they've never been in IT before. Yeah. Right. I, I'm that and good. I'm like, and that's awesome, right? <laughs> it's awesome. Yes. And I'm happy for them. They have jobs, but it yeah. blows me away that, that the two day course that we sent them to was like the differentiator. You know, that's because HR doesn't understand the gig. Well, well, there you go. Right. And yeah. so and so like what happens is that like you're having this really interesting, heady conversation about social engineering and why don't we invest in blah, blah, blah. Like just most people just aren't in that space. Right. They just want a cheeseburger. You know? Yeah. They're kind of like it's <laughs> it's kind of like um, in a lot of ways, kind of the scrum master role has become kind of a junior project coordinator in a lot yeah. of places. Right. Yeah. And in an entry level scrum master probably is exactly that. Yeah. You know? And so, and so I, I think it's an interesting thing, right? So as, as we've sought out the people that, you know, pass and can kind of hold their own across these nine knowledge areas, right? Maybe 15 years ago, I could have called them a scrum master and that would have been meaningful, but I have to create interesting titles like enterprise transformation consultant or transformation lead. And, you know, sometimes we give them big titles like executive vice president because they, that's what they were in a previous yeah. life, right? And so we're trying to maintain some kind of some title parity with where they've been. And, and yeah, right. So I think, you know, the people that can really do this have probably been executives. They've probably had architecture background. They've probably maintained enough a connection to like the doing to where they're not just like a politician in the company. Right. I mean, again, right on and on and on, like being able to tease out, um, the, the people that are going to be effective in these kind of roles is right. It's super, super difficult. But the cool thing is, is we're finding out that they, they exist, right? Yeah. You, just, uh, you have to go in, you have to go in eyes wide open and, and build the right kinds of teams to make sure that you have all of the right, um, perspectives represented, you know? Yeah. And then even once you get all the right perspectives, you have to get some acknowledgement that not everybody has every perspective and, you know, and making sure that people recognize their strengths and weaknesses and what they bring to the table and why they were put in there and, you know, if you have a disagreement, this is who I'm kind of looking for you to defer to because they've got the strength that you don't, right? And again, right, just super, super tough, right? So are there are there areas that are emerging you think people should be focusing on in terms of developing their career or their skills or their knowledge base? I mean, is there anything new that's coming up? 
you know, man, it's, I, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's new. Right. I, and, and, and again, right. Without going like back into things, you know, that we've, we've gone over before. Yeah. I really do believe that the recognition that solving the agile slash agility problem is more fundamentally like a business architecture, technology architecture conversation yeah. than it's a process conversation. And so, and so like I, you know, if, if I could wave a magic wand, right. Senior leaders with, with like deep business architecture, understanding of business capability modeling, understanding the principles of encapsulation and orchestration, understanding the cost of dependencies and the, the cost of delay and the impact of batch size and all that kind of stuff. Um, like really understanding that stuff and helping to figure out how to design an organization that can overcome those things. And then using all the good stuff that we talk about in the agile world as kind of like enablers yeah. or operating within the context of that bigger story. That to me, it, that has to be the future, right? It's because at some point in time, right? I mean, you've got all these kids coming out of college now that are learning agile. It, it's kind of like, I, I think back, I, I want to say something like Bob Martin said um, about like object mentors back in the day. It's like at some point in time, object-oriented technology, it stopped being the new thing, right? People needed not to be introduced to it anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm getting all these students in my classes now who've never done waterfall. Yeah, right. And I'm like, how does that even happen? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, because it's it's generational Changing. change. It's right? actually it's happening. Paradigm, yeah. Yeah, it's paradigm shift is happening over time. Yeah. And what I tell what I tell my team all the time is I think I think scrum masterings is is either going to be obsolete or a commodity. I mean, absolutely team level coaching is going to be a commodity. Yeah. I mean, if you have teams, if you have the right kinds of teams, those people aren't going to need to be coached. Eventually, right. Yeah. And so, so the offering, right. The offering that is of meaning, right. That is, is a value right now is in how do we take the companies that aren't there and help them transform to get better. Yeah. And, and here's kind of the interesting, maybe this would be a good kind of parting comment, right? It's like, I think the, the, the nature of human beings to locally optimize is, is always going to be there, right? I don't know that the design principles of software organizations at scale are fully understood, Yeah. right? So I actually see new companies that are spinning up, making the same mistakes over and over again, Yeah. right? So I, I think the, I think the idea of business architecture and transformation and change management and all that kind of stuff, I don't know that that in and of itself is going to go away. I don't think the basic patterns of encapsulation and orchestration, I don't think the team's backlogs working test software story is going to go away. I think enabling teams and how to do story points and, yeah. and that kind of requirements decomposition. It's like tying your shoes. Got to figure it. I don't think it'll go away, but I think it'll be commoditized. Yeah. You know, it'll be commoditized like junior project managers are commoditized. Cool. You know, we kind of need them, but it's like we're not paying a whole lot for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's an entry yeah. point. Yeah. You got to yeah. work past it. Cool. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you for taking time out for this conversation. And no, for, the, to... for the folks listening, I hope it was valuable. Are you ready for the weird question? Yeah, it's the weird question. All right. So I would last time I asked you, what was the last record you bought, I think? And yeah. Some weird 80s oh, it was, thing. It was Slash, right? It was, it was Slash. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. So... <laughs> no, go, go for didn't it. mean that as a disparaging comment on Slash. No, no, I like Slash. What was the last piece of music you listened to that just totally blew you away? So, so I am on an absolute, and I've been like late to the party on so many things. Like, I don't know what I've been doing from a music perspective. I guess just listening to Collective Soul for twenty years. Um, yeah. But like, I am all over Oasis right now, and wow. and it's it's yeah, it's really weird, right? They Which came record? Out, like, what is that? Which record? Like all of them, man. I'm okay. like like rotating through their whole catalog and stuff like that. And and like when they came out, I guess it was the late '90s. Yeah. Um, you know, they came out like I think I heard like Champagne Supernova, and I'm like, yeah, okay, right. It sounds kind of like everything else out there right now. But across their albums, they probably have 20 songs that that are like super recognizable that are like awesome. Yeah. And then like you listen to all the deep cuts on their album, and like there's nothing on any album that I've encountered yet that's just not listenable. And, and it's just kind of fascinating to me. Like, I'm just really, I'm digging on them as an, as a band. And then like, I use Pandora a lot. I'm not so much a Spotify guy, but, um, like I you listen to my Oasis station on, um, Pandora a lot. And, uh, yeah, so that's been kind of my thing. So Noel you know? or Liam? 
You know, it's fascinating. It's a, that's a funny question that you just asked. Um, you know, so so I think I'd have to go with Noel because because he's good. the guy. Liam got, would have been the wrong answer. The songwriter, right? <laughs> yes, Liam well, would so have been the wrong answer. So I was, I was listening to this Oasis. I was watching. Um, you're going way too deep. You might have to edit this one out, right? <laughs> so um, I was watching Oasis Supersonic documentary last night, and you know they're kind of getting into like the whole as things are getting bad and the, they break up and that kind of Which stuff. Which is like and, every week. They're like the oh kinks. yeah, but at some point they actually do, right? Yeah. And so and so there's like some things where like Noel is singing. Um, some of the songs and, and, and he does a fine job at it, but he's but not Liam. The magic I think is, is with him playing guitar and writing songs and his brother singing. Yeah. Right. That's when, that's when that, that's group's really hot. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I think, but I think if I had to, if, cause it's funny, right. Cause they all have solo albums out right now. And, uh, and I, again, I don't even know what years there cause I'm late to all these. No, parties, they're right? new. They so. both have new solo albums and neither oh, one of them is very, very good. Yeah. And so, and yeah, so anyway, so I so once I get through the kind of the Oasis catalog, that's going to be my next um, place because one of the Noel Gallagher songs came up on Pandora, and I was like, oh yeah, that's cool too, right? But it's a songwriting, right? Their their songs yeah. are just, I think they're very cool, very interesting. So cool. yeah. So All again, right. I'm a little bit obsessed, a little bit obsessed with those guys. If they ever reform, and I'll tell you the reason why is because we're thinking about what to do for our 10 year anniversary. Boingo, um, boingo. Funny. Well, I was thinking about like you know you can't do again, right? You could, right? But you kind of already done that. And yeah. so I was at, at one point in time, I was like, let's go hire, see if we could hire Oasis. But, but then apparently like two things, well, they're broken up for one. Yeah. And then two, like, I didn't realize what a big deal they were. Like, I didn't realize what a big deal the Foo Fighters were. They're just like somebody, but like, huge, dude. it's like the Foo Fighters are huge. And like, I literally, I've been living under a rock. I know they exist. I, I have the no same idea how too. popular they were. I don't understand how I missed television when they were around. Like, but <laughs> yeah. I was like five, so it's a little yeah. excusable. I don't know, man. It's like I said, it's like I've been passingly familiar. I like I know all this stuff exists, but I I just didn't realize the the societal impact it was having. Apparently, well, Maybe it's, it's like agile. Can... There's many things to learn about, and will never be done. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. It's it's a it's a deep <laughs> rabbit hole. So. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Enjoy the okay. rest of your day. You got it, Dave. Catch you later, man. Bye. Like a quado.